Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Folks, this is an interesting podcast episode because the table is being turned on me by Kelly Ryerson, who blogs about glyphosate as Glyphosate Girl. You should check her out on her blog uh, uh, to glyphosatefacts.com or glyphosategirl.com. And Dr. Mikhail Sikiris, uh, an amazing author. He wrote two books that I've reviewed and I've actually had him on my podcast. The last one was a great book, Drugs and the FDA. Uh, it's like a medical thriller about what happens in the halls of the FDA when he was the chair of uh, the ODAC. And uh, Mikhail also is a professor in and the chief of uh, the hematology service at the University of Miami Sylvester Cancer Center. He is a, a thought leader and a, a brilliant investigator in um, leukemia and myelodysplasia. Kelly is a huge advocate uh, for patients. Uh, she has a master's in business administration, and she has really uh, has been an amazing advocate for the environment and how can we actually make sure that patients don't get exposed to toxins and to hazardous materials. They both have reviewed my book and endorsed it on the cover, and they are coming on this show to talk to me about this book, and I am eternally grateful for the fact that they are going to spend time discussing the book with me. The book is Toxic Exposure. Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. The book is available anywhere you consume books. You can go to Amazon, to Barnes & Noble, or through my publisher, Johns Hopkins University Press. You can also go to my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Go to the tab, My Books, and then you can find when you can order, where you can order the book and get your copy. The book depicts the story of the first three litigation trials against Monsanto and their herbicide roundup, which has been linked to the development of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I was an expert witness on behalf of the patients in these three trials that were all won by the patients. And the last one was with record verdict of $2 billion for the couple that sued Monsanto for their non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I would appreciate if you take a look at the book. Let me know what you think by direct messaging me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan. And don't forget to write a brief review about the book on the Amazon website. That will actually uh, go way long in, uh, in being able to, to do so. I would really certainly appreciate your endorsement and your support and you letting me know what you do. So Mikhail and Kelly are joining today's podcast, Turning the Table on Me, where I will be interviewed by them, and we're going to have a roundtable discussion about the book, Roundup, Glyphosate, Monsanto, and Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma. I hope you enjoy today's podcast, uh, and you enjoy this conversation and discussion. I'm very grateful to uh, uh, Mikael and Kelly for spending some time with me today uh, and discussing the book. All right, well, here it is, Healthcare Unfiltered, discussing Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Kelly, maybe introduce yourself to listeners of Healthcare Unfiltered. Yeah, so I'm so excited to be here and I'm excited to grill you with questions about your book. Um, I am Kelly Ryerson. I blog as Glyphosate Girl. I've done a lot of work in glyphosate um, in terms of policy, 
and trying to influence policy change and public awareness about this chemical. Um, we met when I was blogging every day of the Roundup trial, sitting in the audience and saying what was actually happening, just because the reports that were coming out from the trial itself at the time were really limited. And that's why um, a book like the one Dr. Navhan has written has, is just really awesome. Um, so happy to be here. And Dr. Sekiris, the author of two amazing books uh, and uh, a frequent guest on my podcast. I'm always grateful for you being on. Chadi, it is always my privilege and pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm Mikhail Sekiris. I'm chief of the Division of Hematology at Sylvester Cancer Center, University of Miami, and author of the books Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust, and of the book When Blood Breaks Down, Life Lessons from Leukemia, both from the MIT Press. And Kelly and I decided to stage a coup on Healthcare Unfiltered. We both <laughs> love Chadi's book, um, Toxic Exposure, right here, so much that uh, we wanted to turn the tables on him and interview him about his own book on his own podcast. So he is a reluctant captive uh, to our being intrigued with what he wrote. And that's how podcasts start, Mikhail. It may be this is the beginning of your future podcast. That's how it goes. So there <laughs> you go. Never my, with you. <laughs> I just want to say one thing about also Dr. Sekiris, Mikhail, that he he frequently writes for um I've seen your essays in the New York Times, Washington Post sometimes, and you really have an amazing way of just conveying information to the general public. Uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a nice methodical way. Kelly also writes, she, your book is very good storyteller. So I really advise any listeners and viewers to check your books, your blogs, your essays out. With that said, the microphone is yours and I'll just stay quiet. Thank you, Chadi. I know it's hard to relinquish control, but we're going to make you do it. <laughs> um, it's so nice to be here. Um, Chadi, I loved your book. I had the pleasure of reading it in uh, galley form, um, and ruminating over it now for months. Um, I wanted to start out with uh, kind of a straightforward question. How were you first identified as someone who could be an expert witness in the Monsanto trials? Yeah, I, I uh, you know, I've done a lot of work in lymphoid malignancies in lymphomas. I've written about the topic, mainly obviously on the treatment side, clinical trial side. I led several trials and, and um so I, I think in the world of oncology or hematology, I would uh, probably classify as an expert in lymphoma. Uh, and uh, um, I wasn't really aware of what's actually happening behind the, the uh, what happens in academic centers and trials and things like that. I was called by a, a law firm in Virginia. It's the Miller firm. They were representing various patients that uh, uh, alleged that they had non-Hodgkin lymphoma because of heavy exposure to Roundup. And they said they got my name from someone that they worked with uh, before on a bladder cancer um, litigation trial. So he suggested for them to contact me. They contacted me. And I, you know, Mikhail, I'm sure you get these calls a lot also. The calls I used to get when I was in academia uh, were mainly malpractice cases. You know, can you really see this and that? And I really, I've universally said no. A couple of times I've reviewed records just out of curiosity, but I never testified as an expert witness in court. Um, this was not malpractice. This was very strange. Um, I, you know, it's a product liability, hazardous chemical. So I, 
I told the lawyers, I said, well, let me just do a little bit of research just to understand what that is. And I was really um, fascinated by what's written on the topic because you've got two polarizing views. You know, you do the research, you see folks saying glyphosate is the best thing since sliced bread, and it's very, very safe. And you get the people who say it's it's terrible. So it's very polarizing views. So I got very intrigued. But uh, as the more I did research, I was convinced that there's something going on there. There's just something there. And I really wanted to know more. And as I reviewed lots of epi studies, I, I, um, I was convinced that there is a link between non-Hodgkin lymphoma and, uh, and uh, Roundup. And I agreed to help the lawyers and the patients. But I had no clue how big that was. I mean, like literally, I honestly thought this is... I didn't even know. I mean, this was way bigger than I've ever thought it would be. It wasn't like, I thought it's going to be like, you know, a few months and, and, and here we are seven years later. So what is the process to becoming an expert witness in, in the courts? If this was your first time, it must've been kind of overwhelming, but how do they decide, okay, you're allowed to be admitted into this trial. Like you seem like you're a valid, competent person. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in academia, you uh, you end up, uh, everybody think, we all think of ourselves as as experts. We have like uh, thousands of experts. Uh, but uh, um, in court, I didn't know what the process until uh, there was, um, um, it was, I remember, I think it was January 2018. And I got a call from Mike Miller, who unfortunately died, he won't be listening to this. I, I loved, and I love Mike. He said, well, Chadi, you gotta be in San Francisco in like four weeks or something. I'm like, for what? He said, there's the Daubert hearing. I said, what is the Daubert hearing? So the Daubert hearing is a hearing where there are different standards based on the states and based on federal. Like if, if the trial is in federal court versus state court and all that stuff, and then various states. But the Daubert hearing is a hearing where the judge hears your methodology. So the your lawyers, the plaintiff lawyers, try to tout how good your methodology is in reaching your conclusion. And the Monsanto lawyers are poking holes in your methodology. And the judge is supposed to look at the specific methodology. He's not looking at whether you're right or wrong. He's assessing the methodology of how you reached the conclusion that you have reached. So, for example, you can't go in and say, well, I believe Roundup is carcinogenic or probably carcinogenic. Okay, that's great. But how did you reach that conclusion? It's almost like the methods and the statistics in a clinical trial, right? Uh, I was just going to say the same thing, Chadi. It sounds like you went, you underwent peer review before you could actually yeah. uh, move forward. But the interesting part, the reviewer is one person who's the judge. Um and there are different standards. So in the third trial, which was the Pilias trial, there's a standard called Sargon standard. So it's a lower standard than the Daubert hearing. The Daubert hearing is the most difficult standard. In other words, it's really the most scrutinized. There's very little mercy with that. Then the, there's a Sargon standard. There's a Fry standard. Each state is different. But I went through the Daubert hearing twice. Um, in the first two trials and a Sargon standard, uh, Sargon hearing uh, once. But that's really the, then the judge decides, are you a legit expert? Am I going to allow him to testify in what or not? So it's it's pretty, um, it's pretty intense. 
I, I can imagine. I, I have a question that I bet either one of you could answer. What is it about Roundup that makes it cancer causing? So if you've asked me that question, and I, I definitely want Kelly to comment on that because, uh, you know, I mean, her nickname is glyphosate girl and, uh, uh, and really she's done a lot of research on this and I've relied actually on a, a lot of the, some of the research that she's done. She generously uh, allowed me to uh, read a lot of her blogs, but um, before 2016 or 20, before 2016, what I knew, Mikhail, is that A, I knew that farmers had higher risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Like when you teach your fellows and residents, this was a common thing. Like you tell your fellows, benzene could contribute to acute leukemia, the same I would tell my fellows. I also knew that pesticides in general as a category increase the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But I did not really delve into the type of pesticides and are they insecticides, are they herbicides? Like I did not really, I just knew pesticides. So when I started researching, I, uh, you start quickly realizing that glyphosate, that the glyphosate is a compound that is the main ingredient in Roundup. It's basically the chemical that is uh, the, the most active, the ing active ingredient. It's usually linked to surfactants that allow the, the, the compound to, to actually adhere to the skin and be absorbed in the skin. And there's a lot of cellular studies that showed um, chromosomal breakage, DNA breakage on the cellular level uh, when glyphosate was exposed, when cells were exposed to glyphosate in vitro and in vivo. And then there were some animal studies that also looked how glyphosate induces tumor formation in mice, in rats. And then the epidemiologic studies, as you and I know, I can show you any epi study and we both can poke holes in it, right? I mean, it's not gonna be an RCT, randomized control trial. So there are some studies that showed association and linkage between non-Hodgkin lymphoma and uh, glyphosate, and some did not. These epi studies have inherent problems, you know, when it's case, whether it's case control or cohort studies. But when you start looking at the animal studies, cellular studies, mechanistic studies, the oxidative stress studies, and then you add to this the epidemiologic studies, despite the fact that they're not perfect, you put all of this together and you start realizing Okay, it's probably carcinogenic. It may not cause cancer in everyone. It may not cause lymphoma in everyone, and not every lymphoma is caused by it. But is it possible that in some people, it could cause lymphoma in that particular individual? In my mind, the answer is yes. Kelly, feel free to comment, but this is how my mind was thinking. Yeah, that sounds what how I would argue it too, in particularly in the framework coming out of IARC's report, um, very similar finding, which is at odds with what the EPA and all global regulatory um, officers have said in, in defense of this product. And another comment just on the, the surfactant component that oftentimes isn't talked about because glyphosate is usually discussed in isolation. And that is because the active ingredient is the only ingredient in a formulated product that actually has to be evaluated by the EPA um, when 
they're deciding on the carcinogenicity. So they don't look at the whole formulation. Yet POEA in and of itself is a surfactant that is incredibly toxic and in fact is banned in Europe. So the, the Roundup that you go and you buy in Home Depot in the United States is, is considerably more toxic than that that you would get in Europe. But you know the companies continue to make these formulations more toxic for Americans versus the rest of the world, which is outrageous. That so, but, but let's go to the IARC, what Kelly, uh, so then the, so then Mikhail IARC, which stands for the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is a, a subdivision of the WHO, they decided to look at the evidence with glyphosate. And the reason, the way IARC, the more I did research on this, the way IARC makes that decision, they decide if there's some preliminary evidence of a possibility for carcinogenicity, of a compound that is very heavily used. So, you know, they, they look at these and and um, uh, so they studied glyphosate. But IARC only reviews peer-reviewed um, published research. They don't look at studies that are not necessarily published. And uh, they came up to the conclusion that glyphosate is probably human carcinogen. I, I think the point that Kelly mentioned is important because you've got glyphosate and you have in addition to it a surfactant that is banned in Europe but it's used here and people don't realize the importance of that additional compound. So we're talking here Roundup, you've got glyphosate plus others. And by the way, Monsanto admitted in court documents, in depositions, in emails that were shown to the jury that they have no long-term carcinogenicity data on Roundup. Donna Farmer, who is one of the toxicologists, they literally said that, so Monsanto admitted to that, that for Roundup, they don't have it because they, they're they playing the words here. They're saying, well, we've done a lot of studies on glyphosate, which we'll go over because some of these studies were actually in a fraudulent lab. But, um, but they did say in emails, and I believe one of the depositions, uh, that um, we have no long-term carcinogen studies on Roundup specifically. So, so I wonder if I can ask you about the question. I have... Um patients who come to see me who have a diagnosis of leukemia or myelodysplastic syndromes, but both of which can have an environmental or exposure etiology. So a patient is exposed to something and then years later they can develop the, the cancer. Um, often when I'm seeing patients, it's very difficult for me to get a sense of causality. So for example, I have certainly had patients when I practiced in Cleveland who worked at a tire manufacturing plant approximately 40 miles south of Cleveland, um, where they would ex they would talk about standing in a vat of chemical that included um, organic solvents for days and weeks and, and months and years on end and how their skin would break down and they'd get these sores and then they would come and see me and they would have a diagnosis of myelodysplastic syndromes or leukemia. And I would think to myself, gee, that sounds like an awfully huge exposure to something where there might be causality. But then I would have patients who sit, who would say to me as, as I kind of delved into exposures, gee, you know, there was one summer when I was in college, I worked on this golf course and they sprayed the grass with some kind of nasty stuff. I wonder if that could have caused it. And that's an instance where I go, I'm not so sure about that. So how is it both of you think about the amount of exposure a person has to have to round up to then cause the lymphoma? Yeah, this is not only a brilliant question, 
but it's actually a very practical question, right? I mean, I mean, as someone, you know, we've all seen patients and treated patients, so I totally appreciate that. I'll start by saying there's never a hundred percent certainty. I think if you ever stand there and say, I am hundred percent sure, it is very difficult to be this absolutism of hundred or zero. It's just not possible. So you have to take everything into consideration. And then you say, it's more likely than not. I mean, that's really all you could say. It's a substantial factor. So for example, let's let's just draw an analogy. You have someone who smoked heavily, who comes to see you and they developed lung cancer. There is nothing on the slides or nothing actually on the, maybe, maybe with time, we'll find the molecular stuff that can tell you it's from tobacco or not. But for the most part, you look at the clinical history and you say, you know, I mean, it look, possibly the smoking is what caused this, but I can't be 100% sure, but I, I, it's more likely than not. The same applies with things like this. You have to look at the entire history. The more exposure, so the way I think of things, uh, at least in my simple brain. The more someone has had exposure, the more likely that there is some element of causation. You know, if you sprayed once in the past 10 years versus five days a week, every single week for the two years in a row, it's very different, right? That's one element. The more exposure to the skin and absorption through the skin and things just, you know, Again, you add another point to that, another element to that. And then you look at other factors, right? So for example, is there a possibility that there is another reason why this person developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma? Does this person have PTLD and it's EBV positive and then you've got lymphoma? Um, is there high HIV positivity and a high viral load where I really can say maybe it caused it, but you know, the HIV is probably more, you know, again, it's, there are two factors. It could be more than two factors. In heart disease, you could have diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and you could have three factors that are contributing to the, to the, to the, to the disease. So the best answer I have is I use clinical judgment, clinical acumen, and I shy away from saying it's 100%. But what I can safely say in the cases I testified in, that Roundup was a substantially contributing factor in developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. What Monsanto would argue that anything else is a factor but Roundup. It is fascinating. Like, I mean, literally, they would find the paper that said, you know, like there's one, they found the paper to suggest that school teachers, I was on the stand with this, they were actually trying, they, they questioned my methodology in the third trial, in the Piliads against Monsanto trial. And I have that in the book. The attorney was telling me because they were trying to, they were trying to, one of the plaintiffs was a school teacher, school administrator, and they found a paper that suggested there's an association between school teachers and developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And the attorney would ask me, well, you did not consider her occupation. I said, but she's like, she worked in school. And he said, well, did you consider that? Uh, did you consider that in your methodology? Because if you say you didn't, then your methodology is flawed and the judge could actually dismiss you. 
And I said, I can't consider something I don't think it's relevant. Like it's it was it was pretty interesting dialogue and exchange, and I actually outlined that in the thing. So so I think I think it's very difficult to always be hundred percent certain, but you know, you get somebody like Mr. Johnson, who is 40 some years old, who sprayed five days a week, every single day for about 10 hours as a groundskeeper for two years. He had a lot of spilling events and despite using protective gears and he develops cutaneous non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And, and that's really the only thing that the only risk factor that he had for a malignancy that usually occurs three decades older than his age. So, you know, you put everything together and you could safely say it is substantial factor in this case. That's how I think about it as a clinician, uh, not as a as a toxicologist. Kelly, I don't know, you can you can comment on that. Well, I just wanted to, to say about uh, the Lee Johnson, who is the primary focus of, of the book in terms of who the plaintiff was. Um, he was a school groundskeeper and just think about that. So he's out there spraying this on the school grounds every day, you know, that that is his job to go and do. <laughs> and what that exposure to the kids is like uh, at the school is just horrendous. I mean, he can't believe it now, now that he knows what he knows. Um, but, you know, it, and the horrible thing about Roundup is it's, it doesn't just go away. Like if you're spraying on sidewalks, then, you know, you need a rain to have it rinse off and then it it's still you know, it washes someplace else, but really horrendous. But I wanted to ask you, Chatty, about um, know, knowing all that you know with all this research and what IARC showed, how is it that Monsanto was able to, for so long and still to this day, with because Bear, Bear acquired Monsanto, um, keep this on the market? Like, how can they do that? What was what was exposed during the trials and in your studies that that showed how they did it? Look, um, Monsanto will contend, and to this day, by the way, as you all know, they've never admitted wrongdoing, despite uh, paying billions and billions in settlements. And, uh, you know, for listeners and viewers, um, you know, if you really believe somebody is innocent and they'll stay pay about $15 billion, then you're probably crazy. Nobody's going to pay that that many billions if they're really, really innocent. So uh, whether they admit wrongdoing or not, I think the public opinion is probably, hopefully will realize that they're, they, they're, they're, they're admitting guilt without admitting guilt. But look, they've, um, they've always gone to the EPA. The EPA has continued to show, to, to, to suggest that glyphosate is safe. The EPA says that it is not carcinogenic, and we'll go over that because I think the EPA did not even follow their own guidelines. And they have actually, after the IARC came out uh, with their report, they had a huge campaign, Monsanto, with papers and articles that were exposed as ghostwritten by Monsanto scientists. Um, there's a lot of that in the book about ghostwriting. And in fact, it's almost like a Mikhail will appreciate that because there's you know a publisher's editor in chief that resigned and like you know there's they issued a, pay, a notice of concern they did not retract the paper it's a lot of that stuff that I call this dark side of the academy um, so I think they did ghost writing which is already exposed and and well written about I think with the EPA they probably did a lobbying with the EPA I don't have. 100% evidence that there is 
collusion between the EPA and Monsanto. I, I cannot say that there is. I don't know. There's a lot of smoke, obviously, but it's hard for me to come out there and say I'm 100% certain. So I, I don't want to really say that because I don't know. But I certainly, there is enough smoke that I, it made me really curious, how is the EPA um, not really seeing this? And I tell you why I got very curious about the EPA. So uh, the EPA uh, Roundup came on the market, uh, as you know, Michael, in 1974. So in the mid-70s. And the EPA at the time was kind of a young agency. It was just established by President Nixon, and it wasn't necessarily that thousands and thousands of people. So it was a little bit young and understaffed, and they were getting some of the uh, toxicology studies and studies from the companies that making these pesticides, including Monsanto. And Monsanto outsourced these studies to a lab called IBT Labs. And that IBT Labs, believe it or not, is very close to where I live. I live in Deerfield, Illinois. It's in Northbrook, Illinois. That IBT labs was found to be fraudulent lab. They fudged data. They made up data, literally. And eventually, the founders of the lab uh, were actually prosecuted. They, you know, you could, and and I detailed that in the in the thing. So, so their studies were not really correct studies. It wasn't just them. Were other companies that used the lab, but they never repeated these studies. And the EPA at the time, they said, well, you need to repeat some studies. Like they were not really happy with, with some of the studies. And they kept demanding the studies because one of the original reports of the EPA that it was possibly carcinogenic. They actually had that. But they never repeated the studies. And suddenly, a few years later, the EPA stopped demanding the studies. And then the classification switched to completely non-carcinogenic. And we don't know really what happened. So you've got the EPA asking for studies, and then the EPA stopped asking for studies. It was possibly carcinogenic, it became non-carcinogenic, and we have no idea what happened in there that made them change. It wasn't that there was studies that were presented to the EPA to show that. I mean, and I've asked that question, and I remember one of the lawyers in one of my first depositions, well, you do know that we, you know, Monsanto cannot really show these studies because these are trade secrets so we cannot really like if we show them other companies could steal them this you know like okay i said well as far as i'm concerned i mean that's like a red flag so so the epa and ghostwriting in my opinion and look the other thing kelly and michael is what monsanto has done the playbook is that we are trying to save the world we want we want uh, the gmos that we have are going to feed the world and help the hunger of the world. So because you have GMOs, you can spray Roundup on these Roundup ready seeds and you don't kill the seeds. You can still harvest and everything is fine, but this allows you to actually harvest and still do so all of this. So basically they're saying, we have the Roundup and the Roundup ready. Can you imagine this? Like we, we have the herbicide and we have the seeds that are actually resistant <laughs> to the herbicide. So I don't know. I mean, these are the things I can, can think about to uh, to let listeners know what they might expect. Well, the, there is a sinister side to, to all of this. And, it, you know, as I did my research for drugs in the FDA, you see that this stuff comes up over decades as well. And the FDA is a more mature government agency. It's about 90 years old now. Um, but there were certainly periods of time when there were concerns about collusion with pharmaceutical companies 
um, and actually firing of an FDA director because um, people in that division were um, found to have um, colluded with pharmaceutical companies that led to drug approval. So it is, it certainly is there. Uh, we hope that particularly with the uh, freer availability of information, there's less and less of it over time. Um, but it isn't ridiculous to wonder some of the things that you've wondered and, and write about so eloquently in your book, Chadi, about um, some of the darker sides, not only of um, academia, but of uh, regulatory bodies and government agencies that are supposed to be there to protect our health. I mean, um, I, th I think we should ask questions. And the idea that just because the EPA said something is safe should not make us not ask questions. And that's what Monsanto is saying. Monsanto keeps saying, well, you do you know more than the EPA? I'm like, well, I mean, the EPA has been wrong before. I mean, they're not, you know, I mean, they're uh, so so it's the idea is, I mean, and now the EPA actually is being asked to re-review the evidence. I don't know what's going to come out of it, but I don't have a lot of um, trust that they're going to change their position. Yeah, there, there's, you know, there's this bar in science and in medicine that we use for getting at truth and um, are debating the quality of scientific studies and trying to figure out what it is that we can take away from those studies that we can apply to patients and what part of those studies should be questioned because they they weren't performed as rigorously or the data weren't available. Uh, government agencies um, have a lot of other kings and queens to answer to. So it isn't just the science and the data. Sometimes it can be everything from um, advocacy groups to political exigencies that propel government agencies to make the decisions that they make. So I, I absolutely agree with you. It's, it, you know, something coming down from the government isn't law. In my word, did we see that in spades during the entire COVID pandemic, right? When we saw yeah. things happen in real time and we saw at times the government get it wrong. And we saw at times the government get it really, really right. And we, we have no idea. I mean, honestly, I'm very curious to see what's going on right now with the bivalent boosters with COVID and things like that. I mean, I... Um, I, I think we are going to uncover certain things. And what America is all about is we should be free to ask questions for the better good. What Monsanto wants to do is not to ask questions. And I think it reminds me of the tobacco industry. At some point 50 years ago, smoking was cool, was good, and was healthy. And now we know it's not. And... Um, and they will never change their position, in my opinion, unless they are forced to. And maybe the financial repercussions is what's going to force them to. I would love to hear, going back to when you were testifying, what goes through your mind before you get up there on the stand? Like, how were you feeling about it? Because just sitting in the audience, I always had a an underlying level of anxiety. And I wasn't even the one that was going to go up there because... It, the the bear attorneys, Monsanto attorneys, these are top-notch attorneys. Not that they weren't also on the plaintiff side. It, it was an outstanding team too. But you just think this is who the pharma industry hires to go in and fight these enormous multi-billion dollar battles. Um, and you know what? Your failure actually could lead to the failure of, of the entire case. So what goes through your mind as you're going up I there? Was, uh, I, I was very, very nervous. I was petrified. I was so scared. You have no idea. I think my heartbeat was about 200 beats per minute. I, I, 
you know, I used to have that level of anxiety if I'm giving a lecture in front of large audience, like, you know, you get invited some, like, let's say uh, an oral session at ASH or something, and you get a little bit nervous. Not, it doesn't even compare. I had no idea what to expect because it's an open court. Anybody could walk in and just watch you. I I think I think that uh, I was just nervous. I'm going to screw things up for everybody. Honestly, I mean, uh, a lot of the people who testified before me in all of these trials were smart people, accomplished folks, and and here's me. I'm going to to talk. Um, so that's what goes through my mind. I mean, I knew that they're going to try to question my credibility right away. They're going to go after me because that's the first thing they will do. They want to make you not credible in front of the jury. So I was so nervous. Um, and, um, you know, I think with time, you start getting into a groove a little bit um, of getting a little bit more comfortable. That's why it's good to start with the attorneys on your side, I think. Um, if you remember, Kelly, in the second trial, in the Hardeman trial, in the Daubert hearing of the Hardeman trial, the judge, Judge Shabria, who's a federal judge, made a decision on the spot. Well, you know, we're just going to start with cross-examination right away. My heart dropped because usually, you know, I mean, the reality is the lawyers on your side, they throw you a few softballs here and there, and blah, 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 because just to get you comfortable and all that stuff. They're on your side. They're not going to really... But he changed, and so we started the cross-examination. So, yeah, I was just hoping not to screw things up. Well, and something I didn't know about trials is that, I mean, it makes sense, but they go through. So before you go up there, you have these depositions, and and so you had to answer lots of questions in advance to the Monsanto Bear lawyers. Well, then they try and catch you later on during your live testimony. And so that is terrifying too. And I know there was an instance that they tried to take something out of context and put it in front of you just to jar you. And I mean, it just seems like mental torture, frankly. They do that all the time. The idea, they want to get sound bites. It's it's pretty, it's almost, It's. I'll give you an example, uh, Mikael and Kelly, just to illustrate for listeners. There was a paper uh, uh, that was being presented by the Monsanto attorney. It was published in JAMA, I believe. He was trying to convince me about anyway. But he, he said, would you read the conclusion of the paper? Like literally in front of the judge. So I read the conclusion. I said, but however, can I just comment on this? Like, no, no, that's what I'm like. We, you can't just take it out of context. Like, I'm just like reading three lines of an entire paper I said, there are certain elements of the paper that are very important, but they just wanted to say what they wanted to say. And they take things out of context all the time. Uh, but uh, the, the good news is that when they try to dismiss my opinion, the appellate court, actually, they said, no, I mean, they, you know, they, they took things out of context. I was really vindicated, not just me, me and the other experts, when they, when they lost all of their appeals. Chadi, I, I love Kelly's question. I, I I wanted to take it. I wanted to back it up a little bit um, to for you to give us your, you know, how you would paint a picture of your day or days in court. I, I mean, I was recently called for jury duty, where you know we went into a uh, you know a large room, about 150 of us, and then they said they announced, oh, look up on the screen, and if your name appears, that you should go out the right hand door for this judge. And it's, you know, I, I equated it to the Hunger Games and the reaping, right? You're sitting there bracing yourself, hoping your name isn't going to appear on that screen, and you're going to have to go up. That's not what my only exposure to the courts. So 
what's it like? I mean, from the moment you're walking up the stairs in San Francisco, what what paint paint a picture of the scene for us? I'll I'll start from the night before. I it's I barely can sleep because I it's like you're preparing for your board exam and I don't know what to review. I read every single deposition. I try to highlight certain things that I think they're gonna go after because they try they want to impeach you they want to try to say that you're saying something now that you said differently before they want to have like the gotcha moment they might they, they want to do that so i'm usually up all night reading and reviewing and just making sure that i remember every single part of the patient's case uh, every single study i relied on and then uh, the morning of it's like literally everything just going through my mind where i i'm really very scared I mean, I'm not going to lie. There are there are physicians out there, as you both know, that do this for a living. I mean, it could be pretty lucrative for people if they want to do this for a living. I don't know how much people make, but I never went into this for the money. Although that's what Monsanto wants to try to say, like, you know, uh, which is always uh, kind of frustrating. But But they know that they know what they're trying to do. So and then you go into the courtroom and it's really surreal for me. For me, at least, it's surreal because you're going like it's it's a very strange environment. Mm -hmm. Think of it when you go to the hospital, it's like your home, like you're used to the hospital, like you know, the wards, inpatient, outpatient. This is like your house, like you really don't feel comfortable. But for an outsider that they come into the hospital, they get very overwhelmed. They look at this thing and they're like, oh my God, where am I? The same thing happens to me. Like I walk into these halls, I only saw courtrooms on TV. Like, you know, and you see, my goodness, the judge now is like, you know, he's, you know, wearing his robe and I see the jury now and people are listening and there's like, you know, why, you know, the, this yellow pads and computers and it, it's very, it's, and with Johnson's trial, at least, there was so much media coverage. It was crazy. By the time I testified, there was a little bit less media coverage, but when it started, You've got the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, everybody's on TV, the articles in the Wall Street Journal, I and mean, everybody's. It's the first litigation trial against Bayer and Monsanto. And Bayer has just acquired Monsanto for 66 or $63 billion. So uh, what's going through my head? I'm just scared until I sit, until I get, and, and you know, until I get on the stand. And, and then I'm uh, really... Um, it's uh, it's it's hard to describe the psychology of it. Uh, I I will never get used to it. It is why I can't do this. Uh, I, I can't do this. Is not a job for me. It was it was a message. I've done it. I've established. I think I've hopefully served few patients, and uh, the book hopefully will be disseminated to a lot of people. Uh, but that's it for me. I can't do this anymore. Although I'm not gonna lie, I get a lot of calls from lawyers who want me to help them. Them. Well, and I'm I'm always saying, no, no, you need to keep going just on behalf of like all of us that are upset about environmental toxins. So from my perspective, so the way they have the um everyone who comes in to testify, they like open the back door, like it's almost like a like a wedding coming down this aisle, like you march by, you're like, okay, who's the next person gonna be? And so, and so they kind of parade by. And um, and then Chatty came in and you would not know he was nervous just so so that's out there I mean, he has a very strong presence as anyone who has met him in person knows and he brought that to the court and just immediately was like witty and so smart and i You're it was very kind no it's true that i'm not just saying like it was it was it was 
really, and I know from my friend who is a juror that during the deposition, like some people put a heart on a post-it and went put it up like <laughs> next to his name. I mean, he was bad. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. That's the background oh, details we were hoping for. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got oh, a little yeah. heart on a post-it right now, Johnny. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> they, lo- they, they literally loved him. So I, it's not surprising to me that a lot of people call and ask for um, his testimony because it is very convincing on all fronts. That's that's amazing. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious also. <laughs> um, so, um, Chadi, you do a, a, a wonderful job in the book and you write beautifully about some some of your, your patients like like Mr. Johnson, who went through this. And, and you can tell it just leaps off the page how much you care about these people on an individual level. Can you tell us about one of the patients, some of the details about what happened to that person and, and, and what's happened to them since then, uh, since the trial has ha- has occurred? Yeah, I mean, a lot have been talked about Johnson. So I'm going to talk about the Piliads um, instead of the Johnson, because Johnson, it was the first case, uh, uh, understandably uh, got a lot of attention. The Piliads was an interesting case. These were a couple, uh, a husband and a wife. Uh, They were married for about 30 years. The husband developed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, For listeners, this is an aggressive type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and it's, it's the most common one. And the wife developed primary central nervous system lymphoma. So it's also of the large cell uh, type, but it is in the brain only. Now, they both had heavy exposure to uh, Roundup over the, over the years, and they both developed lymphoid malignancies. And, um, and they actually obviously sued Monsanto, and they won. I bring this case for two reasons. Number one is... Um, Monsanto would always say, well, they're old, pretty much. Like, you know, if you're old, you could develop non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, I'm not disputing that lymphoma is a disease that folks, median age is uh, close to 70, 65 to 70. But that should not preclude us from investigating a cause in somebody who is older. I mean, if you get an 80-year-old with a heart attack, don't you ask them, don't try to control their blood pressure or check their hemoglobin A1C and look at... So, so again, um, I bring this up because the idea that Monsanto had, they're old, they have a lot of comorbid conditions. So what if they get non-Hodgkin lymphoma? This is to be expected in somebody their age. And as somebody who's done a lot of work in geriatric oncology and geriatric lymphoma, I was really... I've taken an offense to that. I was very, very upset about this. I said, well, that's almost discriminating against older people if you don't want to investigate causation in folks who are older than a specific age. And the second thing I bring up, which is really uh, interesting um, uh, about this couple is I said in court, you know, it's common sense if you have a husband and a wife who've developed the same disease to try to think what they both were exposed to, like what's really the denominator and my God, as if I said, I just like opened uh, hornet's nest because now Monsanto said, well, Nabhan is relying on common sense for causation. I'm like, I didn't say that. Like, I didn't even say that. I just said, it's common sense to look at what they were, like they literally in, in their motion to dismiss my opinion, they said, I've relied on common sense, complete distortion to my testimony. And the judge, the appellate judge read the testimony and he literally wrote back, like, this is not what he said. <laughs> And he was very upset with with how they actually portrayed this. But isn't it a common sense? I mean, my God, I mean, if you get somebody, if you have somebody in the household who has diarrhea, 
the first thing you ask if the other folks in the household ate the same thing and they had the same food poisoning. I mean, just the way we work and operate, but they cling to anything, which to me, it means a point of desperation. You're desperate if you have to pay close to $15 billion. I hope they're listening to this. Um, but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I, I think- I'm sure they are. <laughs> yeah, well, they're listening because they want to see any sound bites. They could say, why? Well, look what he said now. He did not say that before. But uh, but the thing is uh, the thing is with uh, with this couple, like I said, it's common sense just to ask the question what they were exposed to, and in my mind, they were exposed to the same herbicide. Um, the uh, the last I checked on this couple, they again they won with a large verdict, two billion dollars, one billion dollar each. Obviously, it came down since they both remain alive, to my knowledge, although it's been a year since I've checked on that. Um, I believe one of uh, the the wife has had a relapse in her disease, uh, but I I don't know hundred percent what's going on there. It's it, it's interesting, Chadi. It's you know the, the what you hear on television all the time. Anything you say can and will be held you in a court of law. Uh, for somebody who 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 has testified multiple times, you really have to think about that though, because anything you say in a public context can and will be captured by the defendant's lawyers and could be used against you even well, i do later. i do know i do know that in fact sometimes i tweet something specific because i know they're going to see it uh i mean i've i've done that sometimes the night before the deposition because i totally know they will see it i mean one of the depositions that i was in i remember meeting one of the attorneys who apparently knew that i was a patriots fan as you know i, I love the patriots and i love tom brady and he was he was a Giants fan, and he was telling me about. I'm like, how did he even know I was a Patriots fan? That was the time when I knew. I'm pretty sure they're they're watching my tweets and whatever I say. But there are times where I've actually specifically put something uh, on Twitter because uh, I, for example, I would say that um, we would need to investigate causation even in older patients because I knew they were going to read that. Uh, it's like a subtweet, as we say right now. But I agree with you. They will be watching every because the whole idea is to really show some inconsistency, because this actually might help them. So then, are you? And by done the way, I've taken a lot of your time, so feel free to give the table back to me whenever you're done. Don't feel obligated to keep going. I know you're all busy with schedule, but I love this turning the table. I feel like I, Mikhail is going to have a podcast very soon. Okay. okay, Kelly, you see how territorial he's gotten about this, right? He's encouraging us to give it back to him. So we should keep going for at least another yeah. couple minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. I wondered, um, what is next for you with the trials? Are you done now that you have this book published? Well, I, I never thought I was going to publish a book, but uh, I'm happy that I did. Um, I hope a lot of folks check it out and just learn a little bit about uh, my mindset, but more importantly, that how sometimes nuances in science evolve, because ultimately, I've said that 100 times, science is not perfect. If Dr. Sikiris has to rely on 100% science in every leukemia patient he treats, he will not be able to treat a lot of patients. There's some element of this clinical judgment, expertise, nuances, understanding how you put one and one together to reach a decision how you help patients. You cannot sit there and say, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced 100%, so I'm not going to do anything. Um, there's only one uh, trial that is that I'm still named in because uh, it got delayed for five years because of COVID. I was deposed in that trial in 2018 in November 2018 and was deposed again in December 2019 and then 
things went dark for several years. It is slated to go to trial uh, to court in late April, beginning of May 2023, <laughs> almost five years since I was deposed in it. I don't know if it will. It might. But if that's the case, I will be testifying to the prognosis and the diagnosis of that patient. Uh, there's somebody else who will be testifying in the specific causation. But uh, that's really it. Um, um, I, I believe there will always be lawsuits uh, with this. It's like the asbestos thing. I think there will always be some patients who opted out of the settlement. There will be some lawyers taking cases. But I think for the most part, it's going to be fewer and fewer cases with time. That's what I think. For me, I think that's it after this one. I, I, I have no mental or physical capacity anymore. I'm drained. Kelly Ryerson and I have been here in a friendly coup taking over Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about Shadi Naban's book, Toxic Exposure. I recommend this to everyone. It's a beautiful, um, beautiful book. It's incredibly well-written. It's brilliant in how it covers a lot of issues around toxic exposures and how this actually plays out in the court system and more importantly, how it affects our patients. And I wonder, Kelly, are we going to hand this podcast back to well, Chadi or are we going to keep it for ourselves? Well, I don't know. Could you do a weekly? You and I. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, this is, I, this is how it starts. I think you could start with uh, a show and we, you, you never know. I've been doing these podcasts now for four years. My first podcast was in February, 2019, and uh, I enjoy it. My podcast, as you know, is never about me. It's really about the guest and, and, um, and just trying to highlight uh, guests and, and learn. But I really appreciate you both uh, spending time with me and uh, turning the table and uh, asking really very important questions about uh, these litigations and these trials in the book. Anyone who is wavering on, on buying the book, don't, because it's such an important story. It's so entertaining. You're gonna be so happy just to pick up these this, these bites of information about how things like this go down, not only from a legal standpoint, but also regulatory. And it's just exciting and informative. And I, I can't say state enough how much, um, what Thank a you. great piece you've written. Thank you're here. You both are very, very generous with your time, with your endorsement. I cannot thank you enough. And if they're listening, they have to write a quick blurb on Amazon because that will help, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a great book, Chadi. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, folks, thank you so much for joining me on Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let me know what you think by direct messaging me on Twitter. And let me know what you think. You can also visit my website and you can always ask me for the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. It is the best t-shirt in business. Thank you for uh, being supportive of this podcast that has been going on for a couple of years. Also, check out the book that we just discussed. It is the book that we launched on February 28, 2023, and my publisher is Johns Hopkins University Press. The book is called Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. I appreciate your support and you letting me know what you think. Now, um, before I let you go, I'm going to make sure that you know that you can uh, check out a lot of stuff on Instagram as well, shadi underscore 
healthcare unfiltered and you can uh, send me an email to shadi nabhan oo at outlook.com this would be really uh, wonderful for um uh, for me to know how you think before i let you go i am going to leave you with a quote from aristotle aristotle once said the energy of the mind is the essence of life the energy of the mind is the essence of life until next time, take care.